Well, good morning. You are in good voice, and as Scott uh, mentioned a few moments ago, that song may have been unfamiliar to you, uh, but it shouldn't be now. Uh, after that, good job uh, being introduced to a new song as we sing, uh, You Are the God Who Saves. What a tremendous statement, rich with theology, rich with meaning, and intense meaning uh, as well. We're going to take the opportunity this morning to open our Bibles together, and I encourage you, I invite you to turn over to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, as we continue in our study here, and as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question, uh, really just to kind of ponder yourself. It's a question I'm often posed as a pastor, and I'm going to pose it to you now. It's my prerogative to do so this morning. If you were to describe uh, what industry you were in if you're retired, or what industry you are in if you are not retired, and I were to ask it this way, what do you do? Answer that in your mind. I love it when I'm, I'm maybe perusing the social media pages and maybe it's near Mother's Day and you see the memes that pop up and say that a mother is and fills in all of the details or close to Father's Day, all of the details. But if you could describe what you do in whatever capacity in life you want to describe that, how would you describe that as a grandparent? You may say, I'm a child spoiler. I am a nap-loving... Uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, there are elements in which we say, we are those who are this, and we fill in the gap. How would you imagine Paul describes himself? That's where we're at in 1 Thessalonians. What are you doing? What are you like? Paul says that a godly leader inspires influences. He seizes the moment. He takes the initiative. He sees the needs. He delegates responsibilities. He ensures that the job gets done properly. And he says it this way, that he is, a, he has one, or he is one with the affection of a, of a mom, the heart of a servant, the affection or the love, care of a brother in Christ and a motivator like a father. That's how he describes himself, as we will see in the next few moments. With the passing of time, many churches lose their vitality. The spark goes out and the excitement begins to wane. And the luster begins to fade off of the fellowship. And it's one of those things that through COVID, we saw the great need to assemble together, but uh, being inundated by the many voices, the cacophony of sounds that we hear outside, there's all these pressures to pull us away from the local church. And so it is important for us that we allow God to stretch us and to shape us into a living, vibrant body of believers Many congregations kind of stick in the mud and they petrify and mummify into a state uh, that remembers the past but doesn't long for the future. Paul moves this church of Thessalonica beyond that point and he reminds them as we dig into the book of 1 Thessalonians of the pictures of godly leaders. We're going to begin in verse 8 in a moment, but before we do so, let us ask the Lord's blessing as we spend time in his word together this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Lord, there are so many trying to pull us away from the vibrancy, the joy of the fellowship of the local church. We recognize that in this day and age with podcasts, YouTube channels, TikTok, and all the other things that are out there to inundate our viewing time and our listening, that we could be drawn away. We're following after other leaders and listening to things that, are, uh, that sound good and are good in many cases, but have drawn us away from the vibrancy of the local church. Lord, I praise you that Paul invests in the church, that his ministry, while moving from place to place, 
beginning churches, church planting, and then sending a letter uh, encouraging, strengthening, and imploring is all evident. But then also that he didn't just have an itinerant preaching where he said, tune into me on this channel on this day. Praise you that his ministry was detailed and focused in each individual place that he was. We ask that you would give us a heart of listening to your word this morning, that we would take great joy in the fellowship, the sharpening, and the strengthening, and in some cases, the admonishment of the local church. We praise you for our leaders here at Byron Center Bible Church. We pray that you would strengthen and encourage them, whatever level of leadership that they are in in our fellowship, and that you would allow them to hear the job description that Paul is pouring out for them, and that they would apply it to their own hearts and lives, and that the rest of us would be diligent in praying for them to do so, that your name would be glorified in their response as well as all of our responses. We seek to glorify you together. Lord, we praise you for this service and for the worship we have enjoyed so far. We pray that it continues now into your word. We ask that you give me the words to speak, give us hearts, minds, and hands willing to listen, to hear, and to obey. We give you the glory and the honor for all these things, and it's in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen. This morning, Paul moves from defending his ministry to now defining his ministry. He defended it in the first part of chapter 2, and he really jumps right in, and he's confronting the unseen advocate or the unseen questioner who's debating Paul's virtue, debating Paul's value, who's debating Paul's insistence on godliness. And so, as Paul has been defending himself, he begins to subtly shift to defining his ministry and ultimately revealing why he does ministry. And it is this last point that becomes critically important for you and I. Why does Paul do ministry? And it will be different, perhaps, than what we see in the outside world, but it should be that which we find in the local church day in and day out. It should be that which drives us to a walk that is glorifying to the Lord. Chapter 2 is somewhat of a who, what, and why of Paul's ministry. And we've looked at the who, now we're looking at the what a little bit, and by the end of the morning, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the why. Similar to last week, when Paul was still defending his ministry, we learn what a godly leader does, and he begins in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where the scripture says this, so being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, or we were rather ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. In verse 8, we recognize that Paul begins with the first description, the first picture, as it were, of his ministry. How would you define Paul's ministry, or really any pastoral ministry? Paul says, first, it's with a mother's affection. With a mother's affection. And he begins to develop this as he describes to them the imparting of the gospel. If you recall from last week, Paul is using the picture of a mother's gentleness with her newborn. Go back to verse 7. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own child. So we get this very affectionate, very gentle, very intimate picture of Paul's love and tenderness for the Thessalonian believers. He says that his ministry is with a mother's affection. That picture that we picked up last week began, or continues as Paul speaks of the affection that a mother has for her child. This is the only time, by the way, that Paul uses this word, as we come into verse 8, being affectionately desirous. It's the only time that Paul uses it, and in fact, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it is translated properly, affectionately desirous. And it reveals a strong love for the people of Thessalonica. This isn't just a passing, yep, I was in your town, I left, we left a church, God was doing great things, and now I'm on to the next place. That's how we may view Paul's ministry, because we see that he's only in Thessalonica for three weeks. He's only there for a brief period of time, and yet he has brought in such an affection for them 
that it's evident in the way that he ministers to them. And it's hard to describe what goes on in a shepherd's heart. It's hard to describe exactly what is taking place in Paul's heart when he uses this word effectually desirous, unless you've been there. This past week, we had a member of one of our former churches pass away, and I wept. She was yearning to go home and had been yearning to go home, but she had no children of her own. She was never married, and she was the only child. She was the last of the last. And there is that affectionate desire that is in the heart of a shepherd. And Paul pulls it out. He says, while I was among you, Thessalonican believers, we loved you with a mother's affection, and that does not go away. It's such a strong love that Paul and Silas were made ready to share the gospel to them as they had just fled persecution in Philippi. What would motivate Paul to share the gospel in Thessalonica when he had just gotten kicked out of Philippi just a few days earlier? First, it was a mother's affection. When Paul arrived in Thessalonica, he knew that those encountered that those he encountered were dead in their trespasses and sins. He runs into that as well in Ephesians. In fact, we have a lot of similarities between Ephesians, Philippians, and First and Second Thessalonians. Paul runs into it in the book of Ephesians as well, and he describes it in greater detail there. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and listen to Paul's description of this same motherly affection that he has there. Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, and this is describing them, the the Ephesian believers, and it's also describing the Thessalonians before they came to Christ. Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But skip down to verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, that is being God, rich in his mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul says, we arrived in Ephesus, and this was the condition of those who did not know Christ. We arrive in Thessalonica, and this is the condition of those who did not know Christ. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, and he knew the answer. And he wanted to give it to them. The answer was, that they were made alive through Christ. When I was pastoring a church in Kansas, I was the only staff member, so I kind of did everything. You know, I was the youth pastor. I was the one who put in the songs. I was the one who set up the slideshows. I was the one who preached on Sunday morning. I was the one who did all the visitation work. I did everything. We had a, we had a youth group, And our youth group was quite large. In fact, uh, for the size of the town, it was very large. There wasn't many more kids in our community that had not at least been through our youth group at the time. And so we had a great group of kids this one particular year, and I had taken them, and each year I had taken a group of them to a conference in Denver that had encouraged them to share their faith. That was the whole purpose of the conference, was that they would learn to share their faith, that they would dare to share. That was the name of the conference and the name of the group. One of the practical exercises this one particular year was to take the kids to the mall and have them share their faith. So you go into a mall and you can imagine you're a shopper carrying all your bags and it's September, end of September, early October and you're carrying your bags and here come a group of energetic, scared to death kids into the mall and they're all trying to fulfill what they've just been learning. They're excited because of the spiritual high that they were learning just an hour ago, and and now they're here where the rubber meets the road, and they're trying to share their faith. And I had several kids start up conversations and then abandon the gospel as they were getting into it. And so we assembled in the food courts, which was right next to the play structures inside the mall. And as we assembled there, I had the kids, because it's an intimidating ask for kids to share their faith with a complete stranger in a city like Denver when you came from a rural area. And so these kids are mesmerized by the size of the city. They're mesmerized by the size of the mall. And here they're sharing their faith. It was an intimidating ask, 
ask for them to share their faith, as it is for you and I to share our faith. So I gathered them around the play structure inside the mall, and I had them picture the words bound for hell on the foreheads of everybody that they encountered. Don't say anything, just walk through the mall and picture bound for hell on the foreheads of every person, young and old. And I intentionally started them where all the kids were. <laughs> One young lady came back in about 15 minutes in tears, broken over the thought that these people were lost. That is the affection that Paul shares the gospel with in Thessalonica. He's broken. These people are lost. Paul felt this affection when he arrived in the city that sat in the shadows of Mount Olympus. The city with so much paganism. Paul broke because they needed Christ. And so Paul and Silas gave to them, imparted the gospel to them. And notice as well, back in, second, or in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this at the end of verse 8. He says, not only did they give the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul was not just a preacher who would go back and retreat after the message was done. He was a preacher who engaged with the people and he gave himself, even though his time with them was so short, just three weeks Paul's affection for them was not just to preach the gospel, but to pour himself out for them. Like a mother and her to her child, Paul and Silas gave themselves. And again, Paul does this in another place. In fact, he's there as he's writing the book of 1 Thessalonians. He's in 2 Corinthians, verse 12, or he's in the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, rather, verse 15, when the scripture says this, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul says, I'm pouring out, I'm spending my soul for the Corinthians. He said it years earlier to the Thessalonians. I poured out my soul for you. This is the character of a godly leader. This is the character of a godly leader. They serve Christ and they serve people with the love of Christ. They do not serve themselves. Those who were first loved by God are now loved by Paul and Silas. Though they were sinners lost in their trespasses and sins, Paul loved them with a motherly affection so that he would share the gospel with them and pour himself into them. We also... Um, excuse me, I didn't mention the giving themselves on the board, but uh, we see that now. He also moves on having a mother's affection <clears throat> and a servant's heart. A mother's affection and a servant's heart. Notice verse 9, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul, with a servant's heart, worked to exhaustion. Paul's work among the believers was not that of a celebrity. He didn't come in and have everybody set up the platform and the stage for him, and, and then he would present and preach, and everybody would come out in the adoring crowds and listen and cheer, and the fireworks would go off afterwards, or the light shows, or whatever. Paul did the hard work. He worked to exhaustion. This past summer, we were at the IFCA convention. As the IFCA convention was ending, Taylor Swift was coming to Cincinnati, and all these Swifters around everywhere. I thought that that's what you used to dust the house with, but evidently there's, there's a whole group of people called Swifters, and they started to uh, pour into the city of Cincinnati, and right across from the hotel where we were having the convention was the Bengals Stadium, and that's where... Uh, Taylor Swift was going to be performing uh, the night after we left, praise the Lord. <laughs> but they were setting up all week long. In fact, on Wednesday night, they had the fireworks show, they had all the light show going, the Cincinnati Bengals Stadium was all moving and hopping and bouncing around and all the lights and uh, jumbotron, everything was on and the fireworks, they did the whole show with no fans there. And no Taylor Swift. Everything was set up. She 
was the celebrity who when she arrived in town, everybody pandered and catered to her needs. That's not Paul. There are preachers who are like that, and I say preachers because they're not really pastors. They're not church planners. They're not ministers. They're just a mouth. Paul was not like that. Paul addresses his work, again, giving us more detail in the second letter that he writes to the Thessalonians. He says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7. He says this, For you yourselves know how, uh, how you ought to imitate us, because you, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It, it was not because we did not have that right, but it was to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul says, I could have come in and demanded you provide everything, but I did not. For a taste of the difference, just write these down. We don't have time for them this morning to turn there, but write these down. For a taste of the difference between himself and others, uh, look into Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. We have Simon Magus in that passage. Simon comes in, he's a musician, or rather a magician, sorry, and he comes in and he uh, celebrates and puts on a great big show and everybody turns out. We're going to refer to him in just a moment. In 3 John 9, we have Diotrephes, who was the same kind of way. He'd come in, he was the celebrity, everybody wanted to see Diotrephes and and he was the one that everybody wanted to pay attention to. These men thought of themselves first, and they certainly did draw a crowd. They were the prima donnas. They still exist today, and today they still fill stadiums. They sell tickets to fill arenas. They write bestsellers, and they compose music, and they call themselves the best-selling Christian authors of the day. But if you think of Acts chapter 8... Verses 9 through 12, and if you read the context of that, you'll notice that Philip is there. Simon Magus is there, the magician, and he's putting on his show, and, and here you have Philip preaching the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Simon Magus is saved. Even he believed. Philip didn't have the lights, he didn't have the splendor, he didn't have all the animals, he didn't have the, the show but the power of the gospel penetrated even the celebrity. Paul says that he worked like Philip worked, to exhaustion. And he toiled in hardship. He toiled in hardship. More than laboring for the gospel, Paul and Silas toiled. They worked hard not to become a burden while preaching the truth of the gospel, while pouring themselves out by night they worked to put food on the table, probably most likely by Paul's trade of being a tent maker. And by day, they were the evangelists. They worked at night to feed themselves. And during the day, they worked diligently to pour themselves out for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They went out of their way beyond any normal human expectation or capacity to not impose or to be a burden upon the Thessalonian believers. He says... Not only did they have a mother's affection, they had a servant's heart, and they had a brother's conduct. Brother's conduct. He's already used this as kind of verse picking up verse ten or verse nine as well as verse ten. Verse ten now says, You are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. The testimony of the church is where Paul falls back to. He says, you know, you are witnesses. You and the Lord were witnesses of the work that was uh, the toiling work, the brother's conduct as well. The believers of this church were witnesses with the Lord that Paul and Silas remained proper in their family behavior. And remember, back in verse 9, Paul has started this section by calling them brothers there's this familial connection, a family behavior that is expected. And we see this today falling apart in many churches where the pastor has forgotten that he is a brother in the body of Christ. He treats others with disrespect. He's lording it over other people. 
or it's for his own purposes and gain. The Old Testament law demanded that there be two or more witnesses to corroborate a statement as being true. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, I've already used God as my witness and I'm continuing to use him as my witness. Now it's your turn on the stand. You know, Thessalonians, in the face of the accusations that were being hurled at Paul, you know that I have been a brother to you. You know that my behavior was proper among you. Keeping the theme of verse 9 into verse 10, he encourages them to participate with the Lord as witnesses of the moral walk of Paul and of Silas. And he begins to count for them the leader's behavior. How did Paul act? This is, by the way, what we should all be doing. But it should certainly be illustrated by your elders And it should certainly be illustrated by your pastors. He says this in verse 10. He says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. A threefold description of a leader's behavior. First, he has invited them to recall his spiritual life with both they and the Lord as witnesses to his sanctification on how they had behaved. Paul describes it in three ways. First, about their inward affections towards both man and God. The men had acted with holiness. They had not played or toyed with the emotions of the people. They had not tried to manipulate them so that the people would respond to them and follow after them in better and more profitable ways for Paul and Silas. They had responded in holiness. Holiness is the idea of being set apart. It's different and distinct than anyone else. And this is a significant statement that Paul is making given the attacks that have become uh, on, or that have befallen on him. He says, I'm different than anybody else. I'm not like Diotrephes. I'm not like Simon Magus. I'm holy in my conduct, set apart to the purposes of God. My conduct among you in Thessalonica. Second, regards their outward behavior towards both men and God. They acted righteously or in conformity to God's revealed standard of behavior. He says that we were not only holy, but we were righteous. Holiness is that inward reality of being set apart. Righteousness is the way that it's lived out. We were righteous in our behavior among you. We did what was right among you. They acted righteously and in conformity to God's revealed standards of behavior. Regarding both categories and inside of both witnesses, the Thessalonians and God, they lived also this third statement, blamelessly. Blamelessly. There was no accusation that could legitimately be brought against them. That is one of the requirements, by the way, of being an elder. That's... Paul tells to Timothy and to Titus that an elder must be a man who is above reproach. The idea of that term is that there's no coat hanger in the man's life. There's no moral hang-up where something, an accusation could be hung on him. There is above reproach. It's a high calling. It's a high responsibility. Paul says that he was blameless, that no accusation could be legitimately brought against he or Silas. They lived openly and consistently as one Christian brother to another. They weren't different on Monday than they were on Sunday. They were the same. Paul goes on and gives the next picture. The next picture is... A father's instruction. I love this one. I identify with it the most, obviously. Uh, I love this one because I see it illustrated all the time. I see it illustrated in my own life. I see it illustrated on the ball field. I see it illustrated in other dads. And we see how Paul is defining these pictures of his ministry. A mother's affection, a servant's heart, and uh, what we just considered a brother's conduct, and now we're moving into a father's instruction. And think of how each of these is different. Paul is highlighting each of them differently. And when he gets to a father's instruction, we recognize that a father's instruction includes motivation. You ever notice this? 
If not, watch the dad on the ball field. He's the one kind of quietly, you know, if it's a soccer field, I'm going to use soccer because my kids don't play soccer. So uh, it's the dad that's kind of slipping down towards the end zone if their kid's playing keeper, goalie. Say, hey, stop picking flowers. The ball's on the ground, not up there. It's not in the plane that's flying by. Pay attention. That's a father's motivation. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul's fourth picture is of a father still appealing to the witness of the church. And Paul says in verse 11, this is how it takes place. Verses 11 and 12. He says this, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you. And I'm going to stop there. Three things that a father does. Motivation. Exhortation. Hey, the ball's on the field. It's not up there. Uh, the, the grass, it's not playing. The, the kids who are bringing the ball and about to kick it at you, yeah, they're the ones playing. Pay attention to them. Pay attention to the ball. A father's picture is one of motivation. This word means that Paul had come alongside of, and it's, uh, we get uh, the, the idea or the ministry of the Spirit of God is parakaleo, which is to come alongside, to be that which partners alongside a believer, That is what the Spirit's, one of the jobs or ministries of the Spirit of God is. It's also said of a father that he is a parakaleo, that he comes alongside, a paraclete that comes alongside his children. And Paul says that he is that. He's coming alongside in the same word, same root word that's used of the Spirit of God. Paul says he's doing that in the lives of the Thessalonian believers, or at least while he was among them, he did this. And he came alongside and he admonished and motivated them. That's what it means to exhort. He admonished and motivated them. I can promise you that Paul's not handing out participation trophies in the Christian journey. Paul is coming alongside and saying, hey, believer, get this straight, get this right. It's important because it depends on your walk with God. He's imploring them. He's motivating them. You want to get it right, follow the things of the word of God. You could see the dad on the edge of a ball field, can you not? Where dad has come alongside and he's encouraging his children, and I do, this is one of the reasons I coach, so I wouldn't be so obvious in doing this. Because I come alongside my sons and I say, hey, uh, what, what happened out there? Or I say, hey, great job, way to pay attention. Way to be there, way to make that play. And that's the second thing that Paul does. Not only is he motivating, but he's comforting. It's comforting. Paul's ministry was not only to exhort and to admonish, but also to encourage. A father's encouragement comforts and soothes, but it is typically with the pushback out onto the field. A father is more likely to tell his five-year-old softball-playing girl who slid into base and scraped up her knee to jump up, rub dirt on it, and get back out there. That's his kind of comfort. That's different than a mom's comfort, typically. Moms can do that, too. But this is typically different than a dad's comfort. A dad's comfort is, get out there. A mother's comfort is, oh, come here, honey. A dad's comfort is, God made dirt, doesn't hurt. Get back out there. Now you kind of know my parenting. But there is something about that healthy relationship with our earthly fathers that presses us forward. Now Paul is describing this as a healthy earthly father. We have broken human relationships. Paul's not talking about those. Paul's using the best of those earthly relationships in the best of circumstances. And there's something about a healthy relationship with our earthly fathers that presses us forward. I watch it in my kids. I see it in my own life towards my dad. There's something about wanting to make your father proud. You want to make mom proud, but mom's kind of proud of you anyway. You want to make dad proud. So you go above and beyond. You push yourself. Paul says that that is the response he is seeking 
in the lives of the Thessalonian believers, to press them on towards godliness. Sometimes we need to be pressed on. And that's Paul's third thing, urging, urging. He says, we exhort each of you, encourage you and charge you. This word for charge is urge. Uh, Some of your translations may say urge. And really, both of these kind of maybe even miss the mark just a little bit in our English language. Uh, Urge is the closest, I would say. Charged, we think of something different typically. But a better word, or at least the word that describes really what Paul is doing, is Paul insists. He insists. Get moving. Let's go. Come on. I remember at 5.30 many times, at 5 o'clock sometimes, my dad was a builder in Colorado, and we would load up into late at night, the truck be ready. By 5 o'clock, we were on the road because we had a three-hour drive, and the backhoe was going to arrive at 8 in the morning. So before 5 o'clock in the morning, we're on the road. We're driving to whatever job site in the middle of the night, at least to me. I was 16, 17. Uh, 8 a.m. is in the middle of the night, it seems like. So we're driving, and it's dark, And I remember my dad being this very insistent. All right, when we get there, I'm going to have you do, and he would start giving instructions. I'm like, I have three hours to sleep. You're driving, and he's insisting. That's a father's picture, a father's instruction. Paul could have insisted on a number of things that's important for the people of Thessalonica to do. But he insisted on the goal. And every godly leader will do the same. Every godly leader will point to the goal. Every faithful minister of the Word of God, every elder who is faithful to the things of God, will push, insist, motivate, comfort to the goal line. What is the goal? Two elements in the believer's motivation, or in the preacher's motivation, rather. First, the believer's walk. Notice the last half of verse 12. The first half is this. We encouraged, or we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The first part is the believer's walk. Paul is concerned that the believer walk in a manner worthy of God. That's the goal. That, by one great, big, huge theological term, is called sanctification. That's what each and every believer ought to do. And by the way, Paul doesn't just call the Thessalonians to this. Turn back, if you will. Turn back in A couple books back to Ephesians. We've already read this this morning. Scott read this for us earlier on. I'm just going to read portions of it. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the scripture there says this, as we see this idea. We're going to return to some of these passages later, and I'll let you know when. But Ephesians chapter 4, Paul calls the believers in Ephesus for the same thing. He says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We studied that when we studied the book of Ephesians together a couple years ago. Turn ahead a book, or two books. We're going to come back to Philippians, so keep your hand there. And look in Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. The scripture there says this. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul has called the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. He's called those in Colossae to the same. He's called those in Thessalonica to the same. We studied a few months ago in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 where he says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul calls the Philippians to the same. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And each time he gives a little bit more detail, it would be profitable for you to write those passages down and see what the goal is. 
What a valuable thing for you and I to know where the finish line is, isn't it? If you are running cross country, and as you start at the finish or at the start line, you know this is pretty clear. This is the start line. This is where everybody's gathered. This is where everybody is. And you're a good runner, and so you set a good pace, and you get out from the middle of the crowd, and there's only a few of you out in front. You better know the course, and you better know where the finish line is at. You better not be wandering through the middle of the course. You better stay diligent to the course, and you better know where you end. Paul says, this is the goal. To walk in a manner worthy of God. Each of the passages that I just had us turn to contain a charge of this same kind of walk, of godliness. It gives us the goal line. Paul expands on this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, when he says this. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11. To this end... We always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Isn't it comforting to know that God is at work in resolving his purposes and will for you? That's comforting to me. But it's also comforting to know that the responsibility of my arrival at the goal line has some guidance there, but I still have a responsibility to cross the goal line. The reason for a worthy walk, Paul says, staying in our passage in 2 Thessalonians 1, we look into verse 12, he says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it so important to walk worthy? Why is it so important for the preacher to be one who's pulling, urging, motivating, exhorting, affectionate as a mother, a servant's heart, a brother's conduct, and a father's love or instruction? Why is it important for that? So that every believer may be those who give glory to their creator God, and to their Savior. That is the goal line. The reason for the worthy walk is to glorify Christ. It is also profitable for the believer who finds obedience to the will of God, eternally satisfying against the cravings of the flesh. I, one who enjoys... Either I like Coke Zero or Pepsi. Those are kind of my two uh, pop or soda, whatever part of the country you originated from, whatever you call it. Uh, Caffeinated, carbonated goodness. I I like one of those two. A couple weeks ago, I kicked all of that because we were going to Colorado to hike in the mountains, and it's not good for you to have all of that extra stuff, and so I kicked the habit, kicked caffeine for a couple days, not long, but for a couple days, um, but I got rid of the caramely goodness of those other two beverages because they start a craving in you, and you're like, you know what, I could really use a Pepsi right now. I'm like, I don't, I don't want that. So I stopped. Well, that's tough. But I stopped, and it brought out the truth of this point. Because I started drinking water. It doesn't have any taste, which is a good thing. It doesn't have any flavor. It doesn't have any sugar. It doesn't have any caramely goodness. But my cravings for that other dissipated. When we find obedience to the will of God eternally satisfying, we will begin to remove the cravings of the flesh by the work of the Spirit of God and the process of sanctification. And it's the preacher's motivation that you cross those key waypoints along the points to the goal line. 
Paul also says that it's important, going back to 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says it's important because of the call of God. At the end of verse 12, he says that we exhort each of you, we encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the call of God on you who believe in Jesus Christ to be citizens of a heavenly kingdom. You're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. A worthy walk is required because it is God who calls you and it is to what he has called you for. Thus, those whom elect to, say, to salvation, as we studied earlier in chapter 1, verse 4, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, which write those down. We don't have time this morning to get there. Write those two passages down. We're expected those who have been elected unto salvation are expected to be spiritually elegant in the way that we live. Let us be spiritually elegant walking in Christ. Let us not be the rebellious teenagers in the spiritual life, always trying to push the envelope, always trying to find where it lies, always testing the electric fence to see if it's really on. <laughs> Let us be elegant. Walking in spiritual excellence, taking pleasure in walking in the, the path of spiritual well-being. As we begin, as Paul does, trying to turn our attention there to look to eternity. In conclusion, one author writes this. He says, if someone had really known the ministry of Paul, Silas, and Timothy among the Thessalonians, they would not have criticized it, but they rather would have commended it. Who would be negative about a pastor who were compassionate about or compassionate like a selfless mother to her children, or committed like a devoted servant, consistent like a faithful family member, and concerned like a caring father for the spiritual welfare of his home? To demean or tear down this ministry meant that the accusers either knew nothing about it or they were lying. So in God's sight and before the Thessalonians, Paul and his friends stood innocent, easily acquitted of all the trumped-up charges that had been leveled against them. Believer, your leaders will experience trumped-up charges that have been leveled against them. Let us hold our leaders to a high calling. That is our responsibility, not the object or focus of the message this morning, but it is our obligation. And let us be those who willingly and willfully follow them in godliness. That's what Paul is saying to the Thessalonian believers. What motivates a pastor to do his work? <laughs> As a pastor uh, who recognizes the challenges and the stresses of decades worth of ministry, I desire it to be like Paul. And I'm urging, motivating, Loving, insisting that believers cross the goal line in a walk worthy of the Lord, worthy of their calling, which God has called them, and worthy of citizenship in heaven. Not because they've earned citizenship in heaven, but because they've behaved like citizens of heaven. May that be how our elders respond. May that be how I, tr I truly respond. May that be how our pastors truly respond. And may we foster that in our leadership. And may we look forward to it in them. It's easy for us to get entangled in the weeds with all the podcasts, bestsellers, all of those things around us. It's easy for us to devote hours and hours and hours each week of spending time listening to those who have contributed to massive volumes of things on the airwaves or in print media or in audiobooks or some other way. Let us be found faithful in enjoying the richness of how God uses the local church to glorify his name. And let us be found diligent there. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as our music team comes forward again this morning to continue leading us in music and continuing uh, as we have begun this morning from the very first hello all the way through to uh, when Pastor Toonstra 
prays for us this morning. That every element that we do would be active and engaged in faithful worship. And in that faithful worship, I pray that as we have been instructed and uh, as we have learned from your word, that we'd be diligent to apply it to our hearts and to our lives. Lord, we praise you for the text that has been laid out before us and a glimpse of the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Lord, as a leader, what a goal to strive for in my own exhortation and instruction and teaching. What a goal for us as believers to strive for in our lives as well and seeing others who are our spiritual leaders practice those kinds of things. Lord, I pray that this would also be that which would cause us to be discerning, that we would see the opposite when it exists in others and recognize that they are not godly leaders. And that instead of following after them or uh, trying to glean something of value from them, that we would flee from those who are false teachers who are in it for their own gain and their own benefits and their own financial well-being. So, Lord, I pray that it would cause in us both a heart to continue to pray for the leaders of Byron Center Bible Church, but also a heart for us to be discerners, faithful and diligent in studying the text of the Word of God and living it out and practicing it, that your name would be glorified in all of these things. Lord, I praise you for the examples of Paul. I praise you for his testimony lived out before us and the impact that it makes continually upon our lives as it was recorded for us in the inspired Word of God. Pray that we'd be diligent, faithful students, and that we'd have hands willing to be laborers, toiling in the things that please you, bring glory, glory to your name. Lord, we want to be those who walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called us and the citizenship of the land in which we belong. And so cause us to do that now as we rise and sing again this morning. I pray that we would do it with renewed vigor, with renewed challenge as we enter into this busy and monotonous world. May we never lose sight of the glory and the joy of the eternal blessings that are ours in Christ. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it now. Now cause us to lift our voices in unity as we sing more praises to you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.